My name is Adam. I am a pastor here at the Vineyard, and uh, speaking of stories, the next chapter in our story, uh, youngins, it is time to release the youngins. Go on, head downstairs, well actually go to the back because your teacher's right there. Um, but uh, have a great day. We will see you in a bit. This is always the, like the, the most sad moment on a, a Sunday morning because everything that is not lame just left, our, left the sanctuary. So, um, But not saying that you know, anybody here isn't. I mean, just, it, well, the kids are cool. So as they head downstairs, would you just join me in a breath prayer? Lord, bless our kids. Jesus, bless our kids. Oy, man. The rest of the story. We spent this summer reaching back into some Americana by way of, a, of an icon of uh, AM radio history. Paul Harvey, a very familiar voice for some. I would, and I would argue that if it is a familiar voice, you likely aren't lame because Paul Harvey sure, sure was not. Um, but... Um, Paul Harvey would report on, uh, on some stories, give us some news. He'd report on something that was relevant to the, you know, event or a person, uh, relevant to the day. And in the voice, the iconic voice, would finish the report with something kind of interesting, kind of a, a quirky deal, like a, uh, not something that, that we would normally see. And, and uh, little known facts, after that, he would always say, and now you know the rest of the story. And it's in that spirit that, that we've spent this summer examining a handful of stories in Scripture that when the rest of the story is understood, it helps us to make sense of the Bible. It helps us to make sense of God. It helps us to make sense of his invitation to relationship with him that extends to us. This has been a summer that, that I, I believe really will be a defining season for us here at, at the Vineyard. This has been a summer that has been both uh, amazing and tragic. One of the things that, that we can see through the amazing summer that we've had and the tragedy that we've suffered is that through it all, God has been faithful. One of the things that, that, that we can point out is that we, we knew that that would be the case because we have Holy Scripture that tells us that, that it would be the case. But isn't it so much... Uh, it means so much more when not only do we read it and see it here, but when we can read it and see it in the experience that we've walked through, that we can see this is real. The reality of the summer is that the word of God was tested and proven in our family. This gift that we have from God, the stories of his interaction with his creation, it's one unstoppable narrative of God's unrelenting plan to reconcile with us. We saw him relentless this summer. Every chapter in this book points to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. One narrative, one plan, driving to completion to and through the redeeming work of Jesus 
the Christ. All of this, all of scripture, all of this is about him. Using the words of John in the gospel that, that he wrote, we see that the, the, this common thread that went throughout every story that we saw this summer from, from the creation narrative all the way through today when we see Jesus right before the ascension. Everything was about him. We see this in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And as a foundation for our understanding of Scripture, we see that in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created. His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness can never extinguish it. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we celebrate this, these words. We celebrate this truth. We celebrate that, that we are standing in the light. We celebrate that the light is continuing to assault the darkness. And so, Father, would you come and meet us in this place? Father, would you show worthiness that it is right to place our faith in you would you bring the reality of your love would you activate the relationship could we see you in Jesus name amen so this gift of scripture unlocks the truth of who God is, who we are, and how we can live in created order with him. Today we look at one of the stories that, that defines much of who we are to God. It defines who we are to God. It defines how much he loves us. It defines how faithful he is even when we are not. This is a story of pursuit. This is a story of the utmost encouragement, and the setting for this is a charcoal fire. In fact, this setting is two charcoal fires. Now, why is the charcoal important here? One reason is found in the beauty of creation. If we, if we know that the beauty of the created world testifies to the reality of God, the way that we are created does the same. This crazy interaction of psychology and physiology, how the sense of smell connects us not only to memory but to emotion. How, how where that stuff is in the brain is so close that smell as a sense brings us to a place of not just memory but a place of memory and the associated emotion that's tied to the, mem the, the memory. All of that is connected, and it testifies to a creator God. The power of, of smell is, is, is crazy, and it is crazy how it connects us to our past. Familiar smells link us to events, and we have this sort of like sensory-led scrapbook of our past, but it's more than just like pictures. We're also linked back to the emotion that we felt when we, when we are linked to the, through that smell, 
It's an interesting link. It creates an interesting dynamic. Smell, not just reminding us of a person or a place or an event, but it also connects us to the emotion of that person, place, and event. Crazy. Now, also with the smell of the charcoal at these two fires, we also need to talk a little bit about what a charcoal fire means in this case. And, and, and charcoal, you know, it, it's, it's an important uh, point that, that this is not a normal fire in, in the ancient world. Uh, this, charcoal is not easy to come by, uh, but it also fulfills a purpose. Charcoal is, is something that will burn for a long time, longer than, than some of the wood that would be available. And so that's important. But also, it would burn rather hot. And you, you know this from grilling over charcoal, that, that the heat is, is more so than, than other fuels. I mean, this is a hot fire. But the weird thing about that is even with the heat being, uh, being greater than, than other fires, you have to be closer to it to actually feel it. You, you think, you know, uh, how many right now are thinking about roasting marshmallows? Anybody else? Nobody, I'm the only one thinking about roasting marshmallows. I was thinking about hot dogs like, like 10 minutes ago. Now I'm into marshmallows. So I'm already moving on to dessert. But you can't, I mean, like, where you have the marshmallow matters, right? But man, you get it too close and you feel that heat. The point here is a charcoal fire, if it's being used for heat, is incredibly intimate. You have to be close to the flame. You have to be close to the coal to feel the heat. Which means that if you're in a group using a charcoal fire for heat, you have to be close to people as well as close to the fire to get warmed up. The proximity to the coals is about to cause a little bit of trouble for the disciple named Peter, a disciple of Jesus on the night that Jesus was betrayed. John 18, starting in verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, as did another of the disciples. That other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, so he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. Peter had to stay outside the gate, but then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching the gate, and she let Peter in. The woman asked Peter, You're not one of that man's disciples, are you? No, he said, I am not. Because it was cold, the household servant and the guards had made a charcoal fire. They stood around it, warming themselves, and Peter stood with them, warming himself. Jump into verse 25. Meanwhile, as Simon Peter was standing by the fire, warming himself, they asked him again, You're not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, No, I am not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? Again, Peter denied it, and immediately a rooster crowed. Now, what we're dealing with here is one of history's first examples of someone that went through the relational steps of meeting Jesus. One of the first people in history that knew Jesus. One of the first people in history that recognized that Jesus was the Son of God. 
one of the first people in history that became aware that through faith in Jesus was the path to relationship with God. One of the first people in history that chose to have that faith. But then in a moment of trial, a moment of testing, a moment of hardship, a moment that he didn't see coming, he chooses self over faith. Peter is a leader in the church. Peter is a leader in the followers of Jesus. He's a leader in this community. He had proximity to Jesus. He saw firsthand the miracles. He was a witness to healings. He saw deliverances. He saw how nature responded to the word of God. Firsthand, he was there. He saw it. And in the midst of all of that, in a moment of hardship, he denies ever having known that Jesus existed. Now I want to be clear on, on one point before we get too far. Uh, we see Paul writing in Romans chapter 3 that, that we all fall short of the glory of God. He points out that we are all sinners. Uh, but, but one of the things that we need to understand about that point is he's talking about the entry point. He's not talking about Peter per se right now. He's talking about our... Uh, our entry point into relationship with God, that we begin as sinners. The reason I want to bring that up is because this is also the, the place where historically Peter is not extended a lot of grace. Because somebody who doesn't know Jesus, it's, it's easier for us to see this person is, is a sinner. How could Peter, after all of this, the, the experience of the last three years, how, how could he, after all of this, not operate in the faith that Jesus is who he says that he is. We're seeing somebody who is beyond the entry point of relationship with God. He's already crossed that threshold. We're dealing with what could be history's first moral failure on the part of a leader In the Christian church. Because we see Peter cross the threshold of relationship in Luke chapter 5. In verses 1 through 11, we see Jesus meet Peter. And, and in this meeting with Peter, this first encounter with Jesus, we see something that's really interesting about how, how Peter's relationship with Jesus progresses. He's met in Luke chapter 5, and Jesus helps him catch some fish. Peter's a fisherman. But every time we see him fish, he's really bad at it. I really hope that he was better at it when, like, and that's one of the things that, that you think about what, what's actually captured here. I wonder if Peter has a problem with the fact that, like, he's a really crappy fisherman. Like, he cannot catch anything. He can't do anything. Uh-oh. He can't do anything apart from Jesus. He can't catch a fish without the help. Jesus. I wonder if that's important. Luke chapter 5, we see that, that he meets Jesus in this earthly encounter 
Uh, it's a very cool bookend to his journey with Jesus that we're going to see here. And again, due to the awe, his awe of the power of Jesus, Peter falls to his knees and confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. He's crossed the threshold that Paul's talking about. Luke 5 is where Peter entered into relationship with Jesus. This is where the transformation began. This is where we can make a critical error if we see this as the moment that Peter attained perfection. This can be a critical error if we point to any follower of Jesus and believe for a second that the moment they gave their life to Jesus was, was the moment they attained perfection. We make a critical error when we say things like, he should have known. We make a critical error saying he should have been better than that. Because while this was the entry point of relationship, it's also, it, it marks the beginning of a journey. Even though he knew Jesus, even though he learned at the feet of Jesus, Peter was still capable of a moral failure. What adds to the tragedy is that, that, that Peter thought that he was better than this. You ever thought you were better than something? You ever look back over something that you've done and you're like, I can't believe I did that. No, me neither. Peter had presented himself in a way that makes his denials even more egregious. Peter has presented himself in a way, he's boasted about his faith. He even said that he was ready to die for Jesus. He even took his sword out in the garden and like was ready to start the fight. He boasted about his faith. When Jesus asked him, who do you think I am? He confessed that you are the son of the living God. When Jesus said, are you going to leave me too? He said, Lord, where else would we go? You're everything. These are things that Peter actually said. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, during the, you know, we, we talk about this a lot, and you know, Peter gets this, this rap uh, for, for the way that he interacted with, with Jesus. He, Jesus is washing the feet. He's got this, like, this moment happening, and Peter's like, no, 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 you don't wash my feet. You're the king. Kings don't do this. And Jesus says, you've got to let me do this, Peter. You have to let me make this point. You have to let me wash your feet. And so he says, well, then wash all of me. Wash all of me. I, that's, that's how sold out, I, that's, that's how much I want you. Just wash me all. He missed the point. That's another sermon. The point is, Peter, in his mind, was sold out for Jesus. But when given the chance, when presented to make good on those words, he denied that he even knew who Jesus was. So what happens to a follower of Jesus when they fail? What happens to a disciple? What happens to a leader? What happens to someone that intimately knows Jesus what happens to them when they fall into sin? Now, in our culture, Christian or not, the answer is if you fail, you're disqualified. You're done. If you fail, you're done. That is the cultural answer 
to this question. And we see this actually find its way into the church. We see people disqualified because of their sin in the church every Sunday. This is a reality, and it doesn't speak to the heart of Jesus. When people fail, they're removed, excommunicated, eviscerated. One of the things that you can see now, this is a word that our national director, a phrase that our national director used this, this fall that, or I'm sorry, this spring that has resonated with me because we see it everywhere. This phrase is failure porn. We see failure porn everywhere. We see the, the like, a podcast, the Mars Hill podcast about what happened there. You can get onto to Netflix and you can see these, these docu-series about what happened with Hillsong and, and all of these leaders. There, there's uh, Ravi Zacharias stuff. I, and, and hear me, I'm not saying that any of the things that, that are sinful that, that are in that story are okay. I make no excuse for that. But also, there is no excuse for removing, excommunicating, eviscerating, breaking community with Christians, with people that follow Jesus and fail. So what happens when a follower of Jesus fails? Do we say they should have known better? Do we say they should have been better? Yeah, I think we could, do, we could go that far. We could even say, what were they thinking? But then we get into trouble when we say things like, they must not have been who we thought they were. We get into trouble when everything good that they did becomes tainted by their, their failure. We become a failure when the love of the community is no longer extended to them. The reason that we can say that is because something different happens in this story. We're given a different example. Something different happens to Peter, and it pushes back against culture. We know that this is true, and it begins in Mark chapter 16, on the morning of the resurrection, on the morning of the victory that we celebrate. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked, but the angel said, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He has risen from the dead. I love reading that. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go tell his disciples including Peter. You can't miss that point. The Savior, or the, the one that was denied is saying, don't forget Peter. Removed, excommunicated, eviscerated, not by God. Go tell my... Go, now go tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. This was on Easter morning. An angel of the Lord reveals something to us in including Peter by name. Peter wasn't disqualified. 
He wasn't shut out. Now, it'd be easy for us to try to, you know, reason about why this might be. You know, we could reason, well, his sin wasn't like, it wasn't a big sin. It wasn't like a tabloid sin. It wasn't a huge deal. So, you know, a, a minor sin, like, we can overlook. No! This sin is, is, honestly, this could be the most egregious sin that could be committed. Now, I'm not trying to create a hierarchy of sin, but if you think about our culture, if it has to do with sex or money, we think it's the worst thing ever. How about denying the very relationship that you had with Jesus? Tell me that that is not an egregious sin that Peter just committed. Is there anything that Peter could have done in that moment more egregious than what he did? It is not a defamation of character to say that he could not have done worse than what he did in that moment. So we cannot reason away by saying it wasn't a big deal. The only thing that mattered, Peter denied, it was a big deal. Egregious arguably the most egregious thing that he could have done. And yet, he's still included. Something is obviously up here. By one charcoal fire, Peter refused to admit that he was an acquaintance of Jesus. Peter refused to admit that he knew Jesus. Peter refused to acknowledge all of the things that had happened over the last three years. Peter refused to live up to the boasting that was by one charcoal fire. Now, with that smell of charcoal activating his memory, the smell of charcoal bringing back the picture of that night, we also know with how smell works the picture is coming back, and so is the emotion. And so he's reliving the night that he betrayed the living God. At this next charcoal fire, Jesus offers his response to the grievous sin that Peter committed. The grievous sin of denying the living God. John 21, verses 1 through 17 Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of, of Zebedee, the two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out to the boat, but they caught nothing all night. Now, I want to take a, a moment just to say, this is not the same as me saying, man, I'm going fishing. This is not the same as me after a, a rough month being like, I just need a day on the water. I need to go to the lake. I'm going to the river. I can go throw my shoulder out on the horn and not catch anything until Brad or Matt points where the fish are. <laughs> this is not the same as me saying, I'm going fishing. This is not Peter entering into an activity of rest. This is not a way to kick back with a bush light in a Slim Jim 
Great fishing, food, also works as bait if you run out. <laughs> this is not recreation. Not the bush light, the Slim Jim. You don't share bush light with fish. This is Peter at the depth of cancellation. This is Peter owning his removal. This is Peter canceling himself. This is Peter saying, I'm going back to what I was before. Before Jesus met him in Luke chapter 5, he was a fisherman. He quit being a fisherman when he was with Jesus. Looking back over the events, looking back over his time, looking back over what had just happened, Peter says, I'm done. I'm going back to the thing that I know. I'm going fishing. He's confessing in this that he's been found wanting. He's owning the fact that he failed. And he's also saying because of that failure, because of that failure, I'm done. I'm going back to the business that I know, the life that I know. More tragic, I'm going back to the old way. I'm going back to the way of before Jesus because I failed. And that, that path is no longer open to me. The path of reconciliation has closed. God is done with me. I'm going fishing. Before we uh, jump back into the story, I know that there are some of us here that have gone back fishing. Even though you still come to church, you've gone back fishing. Keep listening. One element of the old way was Peter working in Peter's power. We saw before that that doesn't really work that well for him. They catch nothing all night. So again, we see that Peter, in his own power, is a pretty worthless fisherman. He is going to be very hungry. He's not going to be a fisherman for very long because he, I mean, if this is how he is making his living, he's not making a living He can't do it himself. In his own power, Peter has no power. Back in verse 4, at dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. There's a difference between the power that comes from Jesus and the power that comes from Peter. Then the disciples, Jesus loved, said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. The other stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about 100 yards from the shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Peter's now confronted with the bookends of his relationship with Jesus. 
the fish and the fire. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question. The second time, Jesus asked, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time, he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus had asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. We see two things happen in this moment. Three denials answered by three restorations. Two elements that have occurred. One is the removal of guilt, and the other is a complete you all know the definition of complete, right? It means complete, complete restoration. Peter, through the death of Jesus Christ, had his guilt removed. And it opened the way to know the blessing of being in right relationship with him. We also know, though, that the removal of guilt is something that only God alone can do. We see in Romans uh, chapter 8 and verse 30, 33. Who, dare, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with him. God is the only one that can remove guilt. And he does that for Peter. Now the removal of guilt requires something, right? It requires something on, on our side. This isn't something that... that is uh, it's just it's not like like flowing from one side of the relationship. The removal of guilt requires confession, which means that it requires that we agree with God that we're guilty. And so now we we start to see a little bit more of the picture. We see this this disciple follow and learn from Jesus. We see this disciple fail in the face of trial and and testing. And then we see this restoration. How did that restoration come? It came because guilt was removed and that that removal of guilt was activated by confession, which simply means that we agree with God that we're guilty. Psalm 32 verse 5 says, Finally, I confessed all of my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me all my guilt is gone. First John 1, 8-9, we see, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive 
faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. We have confession. And then we have the removal of guilt by Jesus Christ's sacrificial death for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to, to cleanse us, to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. Back in 1 John, verse 7, But if we're living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The results of guilt being removed are these. A clean conscience, peace with God, access into God's presence, Joy, hope, a desire to worship God, a desire to serve God, to feed his sheep. And one more thing. The result of guilt removed is reinstatement. Restoration. Restoration to the previous state or position. demonstrated not just in human relationships, but demonstrated in relationship with God. In his love and grace, he restores fallen humanity and he lifts up his people to their former place within his service. Peter is demonstrating for that, us now, for that for us now. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 21, says this, I've discovered this principle of life. That when I want to do the, what is right, I inev inevitably do what is wrong. You've heard me say this before about this passage. I'm so glad that Paul wrote this passage. I feel like he gets me. I love God's law with all my heart. I do. I love God's law with all my heart. But there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. I know Jesus, but I also know this is true. What a miserable person I am. Anyone else miserable? I'm a miserable person. I know this. I've walked with Jesus. I know that this is real. But there's something warring inside me. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. This being true means that the heroes of faith throughout history, a line that goes all the way through every piece of this narrative from then all the way up to us, the common thread from the heroes of the faith to us is that we all need reinstatement. 
the basis of reinstatement is found in the reality that God does not remember sin. A distinct difference between the character of God and the character of culture. Culture remembers sin. Culture remembers the things that we've done. Turning it around, do we remember the things that people have done? We see as an example here that God does not. Psalm 103, verse 12 says, He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. He has unfailing love for us. Peter knows that reality. Standing on that shore with that charcoal fire, his memory activated from that moment. The emotion now is different as that charcoal is hitting his brain. The emotion is different because now he knows reinstatement. He knows what real love is. He knows that in that moment of failure, it isn't the failure that will define him. Everything that Jesus said about him remains true. Peter, you are a rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. He did it. In spite of the most egregious sin that he could have committed. Peter is reinstated. Peter has his sin removed as far as the east is from the west. Peter knows the unfailing love of the living God. Lamentations 3.22 says... The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Peter is demonstrating this now. As we turn back to worship, and in a moment, to that place where we get to say, God, would you prove it to us? I'll leave you with this. This demonstrated this love of God demonstrated by the restoration of Peter is extended to each of us. This restoration that Peter experienced is extended to each of us. What Peter did was a crime against God. Egregious. But also, it was another moment in the journey of his life that brought him closer to the heart of God and made him a better leader. To understand mercy, to be able to operate with it as a result of having received it makes him a better leader. He gets it because he got it. Peter, by all rights, should have been disqualified from the mission of God. By all rights, by everything that we know from our culture, what Peter did should have disqualified him from the, from the mission of God. Instead of disqualification, he found the mercy of the living God and was commissioned to demonstrate this mercy to the rest of the world and vineyard. That is the rest of the story.